0: From Notre Dame, I'm Andy Fuller, and these are Notre Dame Stories. Well, the Winter Olympics in Beijing are sure to be a major story over the next couple of weeks. As we found out, the Olympics offer up not only great viewing for sports fans, but also keen insights into human nature and society. To explore the Olympics through this lens, we turned to Kara Akabak. Assistant Professor of Anthropology, and Director of Notre Dame's Human Energetics Laboratory. Kara Akebak, thank you very much for for joining us. Uh, The Winter Olympics are upon us. I think when this episode um, hits feeds, we'll be almost to the uh, the opening ceremonies in, in Beijing. And like many people, when the Olympics are on, um, that's all that's on TV at my house. Uh, and I know I'm not alone there. So I guess I want to start with uh, an obvious question. One of the things you, you study is the anthropology of sport. And I, my, my question is, is an obvious one. Why are people so obsessed with the Olympics? What is it about watching humans um, achieve these physical feats that, that we just can't get enough of.
1: Yeah. So first, Andy, thank you so much for having me on the show. Mm -hmm. I I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. And like you, I adore the Olympics. (laughs) I grew up like, you know, every two years, summer or winter, Uh, I always, it was always on in the house. And then these days, it's so much fun with streaming. You can just pick and choose what sport you want to watch at any given time, which is really wonderful. Uh, And I think the Olympics hold this really special place for a lot of people, for a huge number of reasons. Uh, Part of it, I think, is always going to be, you know, patriotic pride and being proud of your country and what your country puts forward. Uh, And then there's also, you know, the intrigue that comes along with that of how different political and national tensions international tensions yep. end up playing out in, during the olympics and we've seen that we saw that this past summer and and we've seen it basically every olympics there's there's some international drama going on that that takes place on the the biggest stage in sports uh but from kind of the the biological aspect it it really does become this question of What are our limits? And Mm. the Olympics really allow us to see that in in full display of how hard can we push our bodies or how fast can we push our bodies, depending on the sport. And we all relish in, in, I think, if not just witnessing what our human bodies, which we sometimes consider to be frail and Uh weak, Like what we're actually capable of, the strength and the speed and the power and and the coordination and all of that, it's amazing to see on display. And I think it also gives some of us hope that, (laughs) hey, you know, there are people who can do this and maybe I can't be at that level, but I can certainly give it a go. Right. Uh, So, yeah, there's the awe and wonder of it, but I think also the inspiration.
0: Right. Yeah. I remember watching um, four years ago, I think like the luge or the bobsled or something like that, and thinking to myself, there's just no way humans should be going that fast down ice. Um, and yet we did. And we do. Uh, we're Head fascinated first. by it. Exactly. <laughs>
1: it <was> skeleton. Eh? <laughs>
0: yes. Um, right. Well, y- you mentioned um, some of the political intrigue, and I think that's a, a good um, reminder that uh, you know sports can be a mirror of of life in good ways and and, yeah. and bad ways, and you know the Olympics of course are are well loved but they're not without some of the problems that mm-hmm. um, are, are endemic in our global society, and, and I'm thinking here specifically of um, sexism, um, mm-hmm. stereotypes, and, and differing views of male athletes versus female athletes, um, and I, I, I feel like we really saw this come to the fore last year uh, with, with the Tokyo Games, maybe in ways we, we hadn't before. Mm-hmm. So my question to you, why do you think, you know, we're in 2022, and, and I think a lot of people want to believe that, that we've made a lot of progress in this area. Why do you think these issues still continue to persist, and have we um, made progress. Do you think we're moving in the right direction in in, in these areas?
1: Uh, I mean, that is—it's such a big question yeah. that you ask. So this is I'm a whole sure podcast we'll able, episode.
0: It, uh, it on is its own, absolutely
1: uh, on just you know the sexism in sports. And so let me just you know put a statement that, of course, we have come a long way right. than, than where we were when the Olympics first started, you know, well over 100 years ago, 200 years ago at this point. Uh, and so, yes, we have, because women didn't compete early on. Mm-hmm. But progress to have real and true equality in the Olympics has been slow. I mean, with winter, uh, with the Winter Olympics, Women's ski jumping is a fairly recent addition, mm. only in 2014, I believe, was the first time that women had ski jumping competitions in the Olympics. And when you hear like the president of the International Ski Jumping Federation say things like, Well, it just doesn't make sense medically for women to be doing that, mm. you take a huge step back <laughs> and just like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you basing this on? Uh and So yes, we have come a long way, but we still have a really long way to go. And this is a caveat I talk about in anthropology of sports and exercise physiology, all of these things. I think one of the biggest hurdles we have to having full equality, both in just representation, but also in, in, honestly, performance, is that women are lacking in exercise physiology. And this is both as like, research participants there are just not as many studies done among female athletes uh, and also from the research side of things there are not enough women in exercise physiology research to be asking these questions and hmm. pushing that agenda forward to get some of the answers that we really need that we can we can discuss and I also want to put out there that I I often make the mistake and I'm trying to correct myself of interchangeably using female and woman. And and those do mean two different things with Mm. identification as a woman with gender and then female as biological sex. Both sex and gender exist on a spectrum and on a range. And that's another conversation and another podcast I'm sure we could have. Uh, But let's let's talk about the Summer Olympics a little bit. Uh, We saw sexism on display in a couple of different ways. One, uniforms right uh, <laughs> we, we, we saw a bunch of different things uh, I believe it was the women's beach handball team uh, that, that had that ran into some trouble with their uniforms you had the German women's gymnastics team wearing kind of full body suits for their for their right. competition rather than a typical short one and this shouldn't make news like that's the thing but it does because we still have a long way to go uh, there's absolutely no reason that women's jerseys uniforms are so skimpy Mm uh for for any of these sports it doesn't help performance uh and then the other one and this is one that i actually find really upsetting is the policing of natural testosterone levels among Mm. uh female competitors and only in this very narrow range of sports within track and field based on a study that has now been retracted uh, And even if you look at the study, it doesn't say what the International Olympic Committee says. And so some women have been prevented from competing because of this idea that testosterone is the secret sauce to performance. And it's the end all be all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the science doesn't say that. And the science is not there yet. Uh, And so preventing people from competing based on natural levels of hormones or any other enzymes, wingspan, I should say arm spans, since we don't have wings or height, those (laughs) kinds of things. We don't see people regulating height, right? I mean, you don't see people regulating Michael Phelps because he doesn't produce lactic acid the way the rest of us do. You only see it among women and it ends up actually disproportionately harming women from the global south uh, because they have greater representation in those sports that are actually being policed for testosterone.
0: Interesting. And you mentioned this in an article, which we'll which we'll touch on here in a second, Mm -hmm. that testosterone is just kind of one of many uh, Many, biological factors that can affect uh, athletic performance. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And the other part of it is, is you don't see the same policing of testosterone among male athletes. Why don't they have an upper limit? Right. I mean, if you're going to place an upper limit on female athletes, then why are you not placing one on male athletes as well? And then why aren't you doing it across the board rather than this very narrow targeted area, where the one study that was retracted, they don't even police it among all the sports they identify as there potentially being a correlation.
0: So let me ask you this. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, that's that's an interesting point. I mean, if, yeah. if if you're going to police in one area, why is there not a a, a ceiling um, mm-hmm. for 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 other athletes let me ask you this so if we you know we have made some progress clearly a long way to go um what will it take to kind of um take additional steps in this area you mentioned representation in studies yeah that that's Mm -hmm. probably a huge one Are, are there others
1: I think that is the massive one, and I think that has to be one of the the really big, like, square one steps that that need to be taken. And the other one is to stop developing and forming policies that are either not based on any science at all or one study. Hmm. Uh, And this is what we're seeing. Uh, We're actually seeing this in the state of Indiana right now. There's a bill going through to prevent uh, transgender girls from participating uh, in girls' sports, That's based on no science whatsoever. And so developing policy that is not informed or misinformed is going to end up causing far more harm than protecting anybody in the long run. And this is true at the Olympic level as well. They are making these policies on testosterone level uh, based on very little or very poor science.
0: Mm -hmm. So you're saying policies may shake out where they shake out but at Mm -hmm. the minimum let's make sure we have our ducks in a row in terms of uh, scientific studies and reasons for the policy and not just base it on assumptions that that we kind of have in our conscience.
1: And that's the thing is I think a lot of people go into these kind of policy decisions and rules for the international Olympic committee with this presumption of like testosterone is the end all be all they they have this expectation and so they're going to base policy on an expectation rather than what the data actually says Mm -hmm.
0: so I I mentioned the article you've you've written extensively on this. Actually, I I want to focus on on one article um, that you wrote last year. I think around um, the the Summer Olympics. and (laughs) it feels
1: like ten years ago at this point. Yeah, I'm (laughs) sure. Well,
0: part of that I think is um, it's a year ago, but in pandemic years, it it may feel (laughs) may feel like like quite a bit more. Uh, But. You talked about a lot of things in, in this article, and we'll link to it in uh, when we uh, when we drop the episode. Um, it's called "Sex in Sport: Men Don't Always Have uh, mm-hmm. the Advantage." Now, in it, you, you again, you talk about a lot of things, but one of the things I found really fascinating was that you talk about real, uncontroversial differences between men and women, and you talk about some mm-hmm. of the anatomical and, and physiological differences between uh, men and women, some of which actually confer an athletic advantage to women and yeah. those are, are of course much lesser known um, <laughs> and going
1: back to point one about yeah, there being exactly. a lack of research yeah
0: precisely and so i wonder if we could touch on on just a few of those because i i just found that entire discussion really really fascinating
1: yeah, and, and and this is again one of those things that perhaps every single thing I wrote in that article could end up being wrong once we actually get the research we need to demonstrate one way or the other. Right. And so I think one of the really important ones is you know we had this discussion about testosterone. Well, let's talk about estrogen. Mm. Uh, and so for for all listeners out there, I want to dispel a myth that testosterone equals male and estrogen equals female. Males and females both have testosterone and estrogen, and there are overlapping ranges between males and females, mm-hmm. and we all need both to function properly. So that's a myth I want to get out of the way now. <laughs> it, is, it is true that females on average have more estrogen than males do, uh, and estrogen turns out to maybe just not be this reproductive hormone that we think of that a lot of people associate with. Uh, It also seems to be really important with the metabolism of glucose, so carbohydrates. And females tend to have more estrogen receptors on their muscle, than males do Hmm. and this might actually confer an advantage for long endurance type of sports sports where you're going on for you know hours so we're thinking marathons we're thinking ultra marathons crazy swim biking all of those things Uh, because the the muscle will be able to get more of the fuel it needs more efficiently Mm. than say somebody who doesn't have more estrogen receptors on their muscles. Uh, And this is something we actually see in males as well. Endurance trained males, there is a higher number of estrogen receptors on their muscles than non endurance trained males. So it's something that could be plastic, something that you can actually train, but we don't know. We Mm. don't know if those males were born with more estrogen receptors and therefore kind of self-selected to be marathoners or if they gained it through training. Uh, So estrogen receptors, and estrogen is one of them. Uh, And so you get much better glucose metabolism uh, with estrogen and the uh, estrogen receptors. And that's something where women actually, if we were to have all things equal with training, nutrition, and then research and training and nutrition for females, we might see female Uh, race times to start creeping up and we are seeing it creep up a little bit uh on males and we are also seeing uh females win some ultra endurance events outright over Hmm. male competitors as well uh so we're seeing it with bike races swimming and then some you know crazy ultra endurance running events too
0: right the stuff that i would put firmly in the aspirational uh category for I, myself anyway I, I,
1: I wouldn't even put it in aspirational i'm not touching that
0: <laughs> right right okay good good what i think there was there's a, there's a discussion on um fast twitch muscle fibers which i found really interesting as well could you could you talk a little bit about that
1: yeah so this is going to be an oversimplification of things but in everybody's body there are roughly three types there are more than three types but we're good do the blanket three types of muscle fibers. There's the slow twitch, there's the fast twitch, and then there's kind of the middle of the road Mm -hmm. uh, muscle fiber type. Uh, So the slow twitch and the middle of the road muscle fiber types need oxygen to do their work. Uh, The slow twitch is very good for endurance, so basically everything we were just talking about. Whereas fast twitch, these are anaerobic. These are the muscle fibers that use anaerobic or non-oxygen-needing metabolism to produce energy very, very quickly but for only a very short period of time, these things burn hot and fast, mm. whereas your slow twitch burns slow and long. Uh, and so your fast twitch fibers, think of your power lifters, think of your sprinters, your Olympic lifters, those kinds of things. And then slow twitch are your endurance runners gotcha. where that middle of the road one, it still uses oxygen and it's, it's middle when it comes to how much energy it produces and how fast it produces it. But we are getting some evidence that that middle of the road muscle fiber can be trained to behave more like slow, slow twitch or more like fast twitch. Mm. And so you, so you can train that, that type of muscle fiber to, to behave a little, bit more like one of the others. So you can improve despite being limited in your initial starting point of slow twitch to fast twitch fibers. Uh, what we are seeing uh, evidence so far is that females tend to have more slow twitch and males tend to have more fast twitch. So that would again confer an endurance advantage to females and kind of the, the, the quick power advantage to males.
0: let's say that I, you know, after watching hours of Olympics coverage, as I plan to do, uh, (laughs) let's, let's say I'm inspired and figure, well, you know, maybe I should actually get out and, and exercise. Um, Another area of your research deals with um, exercise and activity in extreme temperatures. And Mm -hmm. uh, we're recording this episode a day after the high was, I think eight degrees in, in South Bend. So, you know, we're, we're in that time of year and Mm -hmm. I guess, um, my question is, uh, what what goes on in our bodies um, when we exercise, when we have physical activity um, in cold weather like this? I think some people assume that maybe there's some sort of advantage that like you might burn more calories if you exercise mm-hmm. when it's cold outside.
1: Yeah. So there ended up being like a whole chain of gyms opening up on the East Coast that touted having a cold gym so they kept the temperature really low in the gyms and saying you're going to burn more calories by working out in our like 50 degree gym but there's a problem there Andy and that is the moment you start exercising your body produces a whole lot of extra heat Mm -hmm. And so you don't feel cold anymore. You don't actually end up burning more calories to stay warm because the activity keeps you warm in that cold temperature. This is why me yesterday, shoveling my driveway in eight degrees and you know, five layers of, of fluff and clothes, <laughs> I was sweating. Right. Out in eight degrees. And that's because I was being physically active, doing a lot of heavy work, and I was smart about my layers. And so my body temperature rose and I didn't feel the cold. I was absolutely fine. And so that's what we see. And uh, But there's a couple of different kind of caveats to that is if you want to increase more, you know, a greater calorie burn in the cold, just sit in the cold lower your house temperature, lower your office temperature, because if it's below what is a comfortable room temperature for you, your body will actually increase its metabolic rate and perhaps tap into another part of my research, which is brown fat or brown adipose tissue, which is a type of fat that burns only to keep you warm. Mm. Um, And among my, my, my reindeer herders in Finland, they have brown fat, and it seems like everyone might have some degree of brown fat, but for them, when you activate it, their metabolic rate goes up by a little over 8%, and that's nothing to, you know, bat an eye at. (laughs) I mean, 8% That's great for just sitting in
0: the cold and doing nothing. N- not bad. At all. Uh, I want to. I want to camp out yeah. there on, uh, for just a second because you mentioned reindeer herders yeah. and I, I don't know that we were recording when when I brought that up before. Mm. Talk briefly about that that research, um, and uh, because it ties into our discussion right now. But but what were you um, looking at with uh, mm-hmm. reindeer herders in Finland? Is it's really relevant to our topic here? I think
1: absolutely is, and you know, and Finland also always has a very strong showing in the Winter Olympics. That's so also true. That's another yes. good tie-in. <laughs> um, yeah, so I work with reindeer herders in subarctic Finland, and uh, it's kind of based out of Rovaniemi, Finland, which is right on the Arctic Circle, and, mm. and they declare themselves the home of Santa Claus, and you know <laughs> all of these wonderful winter things. Uh, and reindeer herding uh, in Finland, you have a combination of the indigenous Sami population there, as well as Finns uh, who take part in reindeer herding, and uh, indigenous Sami. Populations stretch from Norway through Sweden, Finland, and all the way into Russia. And so it is a very broad but also diverse uh, indigenous population. And I uh, and, and my team there, uh, working at the University of Lapland and University of Olu, were really interested in what are the cold climate adaptations of mm-hmm. not just living in a harsh, cold environment, but also having a really physically demanding occupation reindeer herding right. in a very harsh cold climate and so what kinds of things do we see uh, and uh, I, I'm hoping to, to move that in a direction also of, of climate change because Finland has been hit hard by climate change they've seen Dramatic temperature increases in the past 50 to 100 years. Mm. And you even ask the reindeer herders, and, and they see differences. There's a lot more ice cover rather than snow. So it's harder for reindeer to eat lichen and they have to supplemental feed, all of these things. Mm. Um, I know this is, is broad and ranging, uh, but a really cool thing that came out of the study, and it is a small study, I, I want to be completely honest right. uh, that the females that I worked with had higher resting metabolic rates than the males that's unheard of uh, mm. resting metabolic rate is the the maintenance metabolism if you were to lay on the ground and do nothing all day it's how many calories you would burn to just stay alive it scales really well with your body size uh so the bigger you are the higher that resting metabolic rate is and so females are smaller than males and they yep. tend to have lower metabolic rates um not even correcting for size differences females had a higher metabolic rate and then once you did correct for size differences it was way higher than than males were and so kind of tying that in like that has never been seen before like Ever, And uh, a hypothesis I put forward is is that for females, I should say for both males and females, metabolic rate is linked to your thyroid hormone. Mm -hmm. Thyroid hormone seems to kind of set that thermostat for you. Uh, But among females, thyroid hormone is really critically important for maintaining a successful pregnancy. And yeah, so there's a couple of links and things going on here. And so any change in the environment in which your environment might be getting warmer due to climate change Perhaps your body starts lowering that thermostat. You don't need as high of a metabolic rate to stay warm. It's, it's very common to see higher metabolic rates among cold climate populations. Uh, and so Finland experiencing climate change like other places, perhaps that thermostat is being set down a little bit and we're seeing a, uh, a lower metabolic rate in males. But females might be more resistant to that kind of change because of the dual demands of pregnancy uh and so the hope is to be able to go back out there right. measure thyroid hormone levels maybe get hospital uh yep. data on thyroid hormone levels among pregnant women uh and kind of go from there
0: that that is fascinating and I'm, I'm glad we kind of uh unpacked that a little bit because that's we talked you know we've probably come across a half dozen podcast episodes in themselves in, in this episode <laughs> but no that's that's, uh, that's all that's all great that's, that' that's that's really fascinating to bring it back to, to yeah. what we were talking about, which is yeah uh, 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 which is how your body responds to, to cold temperatures. so if you want to burn mm-hmm. more calories, rest um, in, yeah. in cold temperatures. Not necessarily this um, you know magic of uh, exercising in cold is going to, to to burn more calories right
1: Correct and then the other caveat to that is uh, that exercising in a winter environment, might be the best way to put it, is actually very metabolically demanding. And it's not so much the cold, but it's the snow. Yeah, Cross cross country skiing and snowshoeing are very physically demanding activities, as is snow shoveling. That is a huge, huge, huge calorie burner. Uh, And so it doesn't have so much to do with just the cold ambient temperature, but how much more difficult the environment becomes to navigate uh, when you're out doing winter activities. And so you want a really good calorie burn in the winter, go cross country skiing at St. Patrick's park, uh, or snowshoeing because they offer those things. Once we have enough snow, that's going to get you a whole lot more of a calorie burn than, you know, walking the track in the gym because you want to avoid the cold temperatures. Uh, so there's that other caveat to cold temperature exercise.
0: Kara, what else, um, we've we've touched on a lot of topics here i want to give you a chance yeah. to if, if we if we missed something that uh we should have covered um i want to give you the chance to to kind of add add to our discussion here
1: oh i'm trying i mean i can always make you know a bunch of calls of you know more research and more researchers that that are much more diverse and include far more women in the conversation in in terms of exercise physiology we can do that right here on campus to be quite honest mm. you Let's get the science done and then make informed policy based on that. Uh, so that's always, you know, my, my call out <laughs> there.
0: Right. Well, it's it's uh, a worthy one. Uh, to say yeah. the least. Kara Akebach, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Andy.